Now, uh, I'm, I don't know um, what... Uh, I, I, when I start this, I'd probably say I don't know everybody here. I was about to say something I don't know but about you. I'm Johnny, by the way, one of the leaders of the church here. But one thing I don't know about everyone here is what your living arrangements are. And I wouldn't have the uh, temerity to ask you such a thing. But I guess for many, you would find yourselves, uh, through one reason or another, living in a house with other people. Not for all of us, but for some of us. And uh, there could be a number of different ways that you've got into that situation. It may be a situation you're pleased with or you're not pleased with. It could be an arrangement that was forced on you by some strange and cruel twist of fate through the fact that you were born and you find you woke up into this life and you suddenly find all these people are in the house with me. They happen to be called your family and you're stuck with them until you're probably about uh, 18, 16 at best. That could be why you're living with other people. It may be more an arrangement of convenience. Maybe uh, it's not specifically that you chose to have it that way, but actually it's slightly better than the alternative and uh, you can share bills and maybe you didn't even know the people that you were living in the house with before. That's possible. But maybe, just possibly, you were living with people that you chose to live with. That is a possibility for some of you. You Maybe you handpicked your house partners especially. Now, I remember at university, uh, some of you uh, would have had a similar experience, in the first year, um, getting to that point about just after Christmas, where you suddenly start thinking, look, I'm in halls now, I've got to work out what I'm doing next year, where I'm living, and it's that kind of awkward time where you're thinking, you know what, I've got, I could maybe live with them, or maybe them, or maybe they won't want to live with me. It's a bit strange, because you might, you don't want to end up as that one where it's like, wait a minute, everyone's sorted themselves out, and I'm stuck on my own, or have to live in halls again. And I remember the, uh, after thinking this through, and kind of a couple of things going, I remember it got to about Easter, and I hooked up with, we, we worked it out, we all agreed, yep, we're in, I would like to live with you guys, they wanted to live with me, fantastic, and it was that elite crew that was going to be with us the rest of the universe. Those of you who might remember uh, back then, who've been around for a little while, uh, if you ever visited our house, <laughs> you, some, there's some, Dave's chuckling, because he'll remember, because actually, um, when that decision was made, it wasn't an easy decision about who to live with, because you see, they needed to be people I could trust, they needed, I needed to be a person they could trust, and actually, there was a degree in which, by them saying, look, Johnny, you can live with us. That was a real statement of friendship, a statement of they enjoyed my company, you know, and it turned out it was good that we had the similar tolerance for absolute squalor together, which saw us through university, so we shared interests as well. <laughs> but of course, I guess bringing this on a step, it was uh, about 12 years ago, uh, that wasn't as big as the decision I took to change my living arrangements again when I got married to, to Gemma, my wife. And uh, I knew getting married, uh, that things were going to change. But one of the biggest things to change was surely that we would share a house with each other. And the decision to live under the same roof was a particular decision of closeness in our relationship together. It was like saying to Gemma, and Gemma saying to me, look, I like spending time with you. I want you to invade my personal space. Not keeping you at arm's length at the edge of my life. I want you right in the center of things. I enjoy your company. I want to share a significant portion of my life with you. Do you know that those statements I've just said are true of what God feels about you? Do you know that? I think, well, how did you jump to that? Well, I jumped to it from the fact that throughout history, God has consistently revealed his intention. Yeah, like Ross said before, as we worship, to meet with his people. Yeah, we could put it like that, as we sung in the song a second ago. Remember, God is with us. We use phrases like that. 
But actually, it's more than that. God's revealed his intention that he wants to live with his people. Throughout history, we see that uh, in God's word. He doesn't just express an interest in dropping by every now and then with you. He doesn't just want to pop in for the odd cup of tea with you. No, he moves in with you and with us. <laughs> and it's not that he couldn't find anywhere else to stay. It's not a kind of convenient deal. It's not like the rent in heaven was getting a little bit weighty for him, so he needs to kind of share it out a little bit. No, no, this is an expression of his feelings for us. He chose his people to live with us. And today, as we continue looking at this theme of what kind of church God wants us to be, I want to look at this fact, because it's a bit of a strange fact, but this fact that we, we want to be, and God wants us to be, a church where he lives, not just where he kind of pops in, and not where he keeps his arm length, but where he lives with us. And I want to look at God's living arrangements through history, if I can put it through that, to sort of set the scene and see how this works. And then practically ask, well, that sounds very nice as a spiritual idea, but what practically does that mean for us, for God to live with his church? And if you've got a, a Bible here, it will appear behind me anyway, but we're going to be in Ephesians 2. Uh, Ephesians 2, 19 to 22. We're, we're going to start here. I want to uh, zoom in. We're going to be going into the past, looking at where, how, how God did this stuff before. But I want to zoom into now. I think this is a situation we find ourselves in now. Ephesians 2, 19 to 22. I'm reading from the NIV, and then we'll go around and see, well, how does this work? Does God really want to live with his people? And how does that happen? Okay, this is what Paul writes. Consequently, you are no longer foreigners and strangers, but fellow citizens with God's people and also members of his household, built on the foundation of the apostles and prophets with Christ Jesus himself as the chief cornerstone. In him, the whole building is joined together and rises to become a holy temple in the Lord. And in him, you too are being built together to become a dwelling in which God lives by his spirit. That last verse, in him too, you are being built together to becoming a dwelling in which God lives by his spirit. What's Paul saying? Paul's saying this, that God's plan for the church is to be the place where he lives. And God is with us. That's a slogan we often use, isn't it? God is with us. Well, what does it mean? Well, what it means is not that when you become a Christian, you join God's fan club. You might get his letter every now and again or... Like kind of you wear the badge, but you never expect to kind of ever see him. No, no, it means God moves in with us. God makes his home with us. And it's a, I think it's a massive idea. So it's not unfamiliar, I'm sure, to those of you who've been a Christian for any length of time, but it's huge. And it's clear, it's good to know that now we're not in this situation as some sort of plan B. This has been God's plan from the very, very start. His plan living arrangements has always been with his people. So let's survey that. Let's think about how that's worked uh, up before this, before we we're now in the, this, uh, the age of the Spirit, where we live the time after, uh, between Jesus' first coming and second coming. Let's look before Jesus came. Is that the case in the Old Testament? Well, let's go back to the start. God makes people. And uh, at the beginning, there's a level of relationship, there's a level of closeness of presence in the garden. People fall, people sin. Uh, they go against God. And uh, God then comes across the screen. He could have... And, Many would say, if you look at it, he should have just got rid of us. Started again, he almost did in the flood. But God decided, no, I'm going to rescue these people. I want even more of a level of closeness than I had in the garden with them. And how's he going to do it? Well, he shows himself to Abraham. He shows himself. From the very beginning, he comes to people. He doesn't just speak 
Abraham and Sarah received three visitors, who it turns out, representation of God's presence to them. As time goes on, Isaac, Jacob, Jacob meets God, he wrestles with God, he sees visions of God, God's presence is with him. Joseph, taken to Egypt, and uh, descendants of uh, what's to be God's people grow, but they're slaves in that nation. And as you'll know, Moses uh, leads the people out of Egypt. And what's uh, strange here, not so strange, what's interesting to note is the minute the people of Israel are out of slavery, kind of this is the point where they could be seen as a people, God's presence comes to be with them, not every now and again, but almost on a permanent basis. We, we see, I think, firstly, in Exodus 13, 21 to 22. I, I'm gonna, these are just going to appear here. They are. It's amazing. Miracle. Uh, good work. So don't worry about flicking around in your Bible. But it says this. Um, just after the, they've come out of, the, um, out of Egypt. By day, the Lord went ahead of them in a pillar of cloud to guide them on their way. And by night, in a pillar of fire to give them light. So they could travel by day or by night. Neither the pillar of cloud by day nor the pillar of fire by night left its place in front of the people. So God, he guides them out of Egypt. He protects them. He's there with them. And also, another element of this cloud and this pillar, God's presence with them, he protects them, but he also throws their enemies into utter disarray as he lives with them. So Exodus 14, 23 to 25, again, you might know the story, they're out of Egypt, but the Egyptians come back to pursue them, Red Sea opens, Israelites go through, well, this is what happens next, the Egyptians pursued them, and all Pharaoh's horses and chariots and horsemen followed them into the sea. During the last watch of the night, the Lord looked down from the pillar of fire. That's where he's living. At the moment, I'm in the pillar of fire. Oh, let's see. He looks down from the pillar of fire and cloud at the Egyptian army and threw it into confusion. He jammed the wheels of their chariots so that they had difficulty driving. And the Egyptians said, let's get away from the Israelites. The Lord is fighting for them against Egypt. A little bit too late for that for the Egyptians, but that's another story, I suppose. Um, anyway, God with them for the people of Israel at this time was not a slogan. It was a fact, a verifiable fact. In fact, if you'd said, oh, he is, is he? Show me where he is. They'd have gone, pillar of fire. There you go. That's where he is. There was even, in a strange way, this location where God's presence was kind of, uh, it was the symbol of God's presence there. And actually, it wasn't just an exceptional measure for exceptional circumstances, getting them out of Egypt. You'd have thought, well, God will need to be there, then he can go back to his business, where else he's doing elsewhere. No, as time went on, it was very clear this was to be a permanent cohabitation. Exodus 25, verse 8. As uh, God starts, as the people of Israel move out, God gives them the law that they can live as a people, and particularly as the people of God, uh, he gives them many instructions on how to make this cohabitation permanent. Exodus 25, 8 is what God says to Moses, have them make a sanctuary for me and I will dwell among them. So you might think, well, how would that work if I was God and I wanted to live with people? Where would I go? Well, this is what God asked them to do. It's a combination, really, of a small box called an ark. I don't know if you've read the story. Don't think of Noah's ark. It's a box and it had the stones of the... Um, and God had written on for the Ten Commandments in it. And that seemed to be like the hub of God's presence. And that was kept in a tent, the tent of meeting. And this whole thing was known as the tabernacle. And basically, that was moved around wherever the Israelites went and was seen in many ways as the sort of place where God lived. 
So Exodus 33, 7 to 11. Again, this is the idea. Now Moses used to take a tent and pitch it outside the camp some distance away, calling it the tent of meeting. Anyone inquiring of the Lord would go to the tent of meeting outside the camp. Whenever Moses went out to the tent, all the people rose and stood at the entrances of their tents, watching Moses until he entered the tent. As Moses went into the tent, the pillar of cloud would come down at stay at the entrance while the Lord spoke with Moses. Whenever the people saw the pillar of cloud standing at the entrance to the tent, they all stood and worshipped, each at the entrance of their tent. The Lord would speak to Moses face to face as one speaks to a friend. This is early days for the people of God here. They've got no idea about Jesus and what's to come in the future. But right away, God is coming incredibly close, face to face like a friend. And he's living there with them. And it seemed to them, the best way for them to understand it, was he was occupying a physical location. So, moving on a few, few years, you've got the, the Israelites in this situation. But time passes and, and they get a king. And the first one's not too good, so get rid of him. King David comes along, and King David's a good, good guy, as you know if you knew the story. And one thing he thinks is, well, you know what? God seems very intent on living with us. He seems to be quite keen on this idea. You know what? Tents, not the most comfortable place to live. Anyone, if, if you're at Catalyst, if you're at Catalyst Festival this year, you'll, you'll appreciate this, okay? Even if you had a caravan, I think you'd probably prefer something a bit more permanent. So he thinks to himself, maybe he'd been to the Catalyst Festival, who knows? But he said, God needs something a little better than this. I'm going to build him a temple. And as it turns out, David is not the one to lay the bricks for it, but he puts some plans into place. He sorts out some stuff from his friends from the different countries. And basically his son makes this temple for God. 1 Kings 8, 10 to 13, Solomon builds the temple. They bring in this box, the ark, okay? Right in there, the box that's seen as the hub of God's presence with his people. What happens? Well, this happens. When the priest withdrew from the holy place, the cloud filled the temple of the Lord. And the priests could not perform their service because of the cloud, for the glory of the Lord filled his temple. Then Solomon said, The Lord said that he would dwell in a dark cloud. I have indeed built a magnificent temple for you, a place for you to dwell forever. Don't know if you ever, again, these kind of words trip over your tongue as, as Christians. God's with us. He's, we're going to meet with God this morning. Don't know what you think that might look like. Actually, I think often we think at least we fall into kind of metaphorical language. That oh, it kind of means not really meeting with us, doesn't it? That's really what it means. Well, I'll tell you what, that's not the case here. This isn't metaphor. There is a genuine presence of God. There is this, this kind of cloud, something you can see. There is this feeling. It says that the priests could not perform their service because of the cloud. I mean, I don't know what that means. No idea at all. But I know that there was a tangible effect of the presence of God. God was there and he made a difference. But of course, the temple wasn't the place for God to dwell forever. Israel disobey God consistently, take him for granted, and the temple is destroyed. And you think, well, now surely God will see sense. Doesn't this whole living with people thing, that was always going to be a bit hairy. Plan B. No, not plan B. Actually, that through that, even through Israel's sin, God then cranks it up a notch. Because then John 1.14 says this, the word became flesh and made his dwelling among us. What happens? God comes literally in the person of Jesus. Again, what's he coming to do? He's coming to live with his people. But again, there's still a slightly limited reality of his presence here. You might think that's a bit 
I don't mean that in any way disrespectfully, but Jesus was one guy. He touched many thousands of people with the presence of God, but he was one guy in one place at one time. He couldn't get around everywhere in that sort of sense. But what Jesus said as he was coming close to leaving, he told his disciples, look, guys, I'm not going to leave you as orphans. I will come to you. He was talking about when he'd, he'd gone. I will not leave you as orphans. What's he talking about? Well, then when Jesus goes up to heaven at Pentecost, we see what he means. Is the Holy Spirit comes down to God's uh, people. In a dramatic story, there's fire, there's wind. Again, it's tangible here. And the Spirit comes, and then the Spirit brings God's presence to all people for all time. And this brings us from the beginning right back to the verse we started with. What's the church then? Well, the church is to be the dwelling in which God lives now by his Spirit. We don't need a box. We don't need a fancy building. Actually, it's not like we wait our turn out of all the millions of churches in the world for Jesus to come because he can only be in one place at one time. Now, the Spirit is here filling local expressions of the church of God with his Spirit because God's plans to live with us. You ask the question, where's God today? Where's God? People ask that question, like, where's God in this? Well, there's a very real answer to that question, which you can say, look, I can point to the location of God, kind of. He's in his church. He's in local expressions of community under biblical guidelines that are called local churches. That's where God's presence is most powerfully today. I want to challenge you before we apply. Do you realize how central the presence of God is in Christianity? This is not we are not involved in something that's about primarily about ideas here. There are ideas are things to believe. There are that sort of stuff. We wrestle with difficult bits in the Bible. We do that. There's a worldview here, we would call it, a kind of pattern of ideas. But actually, what's to be a Christian? Like, what's really, if you boil it down, what's the difference between a Christian and a non-Christian? Well, it's to do with the presence of God. God's in us. He's with us. He wants to reveal himself to us. If you've settled for an intellectual Christianity, you've missed it completely. Being a Christian is about encountering God. Like when I was at university, I'd come out of the bathroom, I'd encounter my housemates. I'd go to make dinner, I would encounter my housemates. I'd go to do the washing up. No, no, no. I'd, I'd go to make dinner, I'd encounter my housemates. I'd, I'd be spending some time on my own in my room. Knock, knock, I'd encounter my housemates. Because they were there, they were living with me. It should be like that as part of his church. Why? Because he wants to dwell among us. What distinguishes us from other people, from other religions, from other philosophies? Well, actually, it's God's living presence with us. And again, that's, for some of us, we just need to be reminded of that because we have to push into God's presence so often. But for others, you might think, yes, okay, I agree. But what on earth does that mean practically? So let's look at three practical things to finish. Let's look at three things that that would mean for us. Okay? What does it mean to us as individuals for God to live with us? What does it mean when we meet together as a church for God to live with us? And what does it mean when we do mission as a church? I think those three things we can, we can cover, and it should give us some flesh on the bones of this whole thing. So first of all, what does it mean in our individual lives for God to meet with us? Well, it's got to be said, while we're going to be going to talk about the, the church, corporate people together, community stuff, well, actually... It's true to say that God, uh, we experience God's presence through his spirit as individual Christians. 1 Corinthians 6.19, Paul says, Don't you know that your body is a temple of the Holy Spirit? The Old Testament is the temple. That's where God seems to dwell. Well, where is it now? Well, in, in our 
physical bodies as Christians, with us as individual Christians. Romans 8, 9 to 10. Incredible passage. You, however, are controlled not by the sinful nature, but by the Spirit. If the Spirit of God lives in you, and if anyone does not have the Spirit of Christ, he does not belong to Christ. Think about the ramifications of that for a second. When someone becomes a Christian, God's Spirit, the Holy Spirit, the Spirit of Christ, comes to live in you. That's a fact, according to Paul. It's something he he just passes over. Of course, that's the case. You might not feel like it. You might not have had a particularly holy week. But that's what it is to be a Christian. If you do not have the Spirit of Christ, it doesn't show that you've got a few sins to deal with or you should really be reading your Bible more. It shows that you're not a Christian because that's what being a Christian is. It's having the Spirit. Listen, the Spirit lives inside all Christians. That's clear from what Paul's saying in Romans 8. You might think, well, that's the end of the story. Fantastic. However, he lives inside all Christians, but at the same time, we have a responsibility to maximize the presence of God in our lives. Ephesians 5.18. This is another good thing back to uni. This is another relevant verse for me. Do not get drunk on wine, but go on being filled with the Holy Spirit. So, trip down memory lane here, some key verses. Go on being filled with the Holy Spirit. It's a a kind of keep on doing it, not be filled with the Spirit and that's done and dusted. No, it's keep on doing it. You might think, well, that's confusing. You said a minute ago, God was living with me as a Christian and now I've got to keep on being filled. That just doesn't seem to make any sense. Well, I've been thinking about this and I have an analogy that I don't think is perfect but it fits in with the rest of my sermon and I think is not heresy. So therefore, I'm going to use it. Okay? I, I, I'm setting my bar reasonably low, but I hope it helps you. <laughs> um, think back to the, the lodger, living together example. We, me and Gemma, we've had, um, we've had a few lodgers over the year. Yes, I think one might be here, actually. Oh, I'm not sure if he is. Maybe not. Good, I can say wherever I like. Um, <laughs> um, and we, I've noticed over different numbers of lodgers, there are two different types of lodgers that you can have. Um, and one of them, is the sort of stay-in-your-room lodger. You never really see it at all, and they kind of keep themselves to themselves. And partly that might be how you want things to be. Partly that might be because they're a bit nervous. They don't quite know what they're allowed to do. But actually, um, they kind of think, well, you, you probably prefer the living room, so I'm going to watch telly in my bedroom. You're cooking at that time. I'll cook a bit later, you know. And they're kind of, you don't really see a whole lot of them. And they live with you, but their presence is sort of restricted. There's that kind of lodger, okay? Uh, I'm not saying, by the way, in either of these cases, which is good or bad. I'm just stating how it is, because I know that there are people here. Anyway, um, there is another kind of lodger who is the access all areas lodger, okay? Now, so you come home... And you're thinking, oh, I could really do with just, just chilling out. You're going to the living room. And there they are with their feet up with your favourite food from the freezer just there, cooked with their feet up watching some programme that's awful. Dog the Bounty Hunter or something like that. I don't know. <laughs> that's true. It was Dog the Bounty Hunter. Anyway. Um, <laughs> um, and so um, you, you go to serve up dinner and they appear again, having raided your freezer already. You go, oh, fantastic. Don't mind if I do. You're trying to have a romantic evening together. And there they are just sitting there the whole time. Like, Candles. Come on. Can't you see? I'm trying to do this thing. And they're like, hey, let's talk about the football or something or something like that. They're the access all areas lodger. Now, um, 
I'll admit there's both challenges on both sides, but the second type can be a bit of a challenge. You know, I want some space here, please. I, I like your rent. I just don't like you always in my face. No, anyway, so sometimes I, but there are times where I prefer not to have you around. Well, listen, God wants to be an access all area lodger in our homes. That's what he wants to be. And actually, for some of you, I don't think that you've ever let him, or at least spelt it out to him, that that's how it is. You'd like to have some of your life to yourself. He's living there, he's with you, but you'd like to have some bits you can do without having to think about what God would think about it all the time if he's just there in the room. You don't necessarily want to hear his voice all the time, prompting you to do scary, adventurous things. Well, listen, that's you. Today, God is calling a house meeting, and he's saying, look, This isn't the deal I signed up for here. I want access all areas in this place. Have you done that before? In a sense, I think that's what Paul means. He says, go on being filled. Or you may have heard the phrase, uh, baptism in the Spirit. In a sense, that's when you first give the Spirit of God, who lives in you anyway, access all areas to your life. Now, when we do this, Obviously, we sense God's presence more in our lives and we feel his love more than we would before. Actually, also we see in the Bible that when we do this, God's gracious, he loves us. He's not just trying to be a pain and he gives us gifts. And often when we give God access or areas, he says, well, here's, have some gifts, have some presents. My presence is a present, (laughs) but also I have gifts for you as well. And often in in the Bible, as you look through the book of Acts, There's two gifts that often come up when when first people are baptized in the Holy Spirit, when the Spirit's living in them, is given access for their whole lives and fills them with his presence in a new way, is the gift of a prophecy and the gift of tongues. And just to back up, the gift of prophecy is when God speaks to you in a way that kind of uh, more clearly than before, sometimes for other people to encourage them, sometimes just for yourself of some things he's doing or stuff like that. Gift of tongues, slightly more unusual, uh, is a, a language that uh, you wouldn't have learnt that as you pray, you can use to kind of to, to pray to God. And it's, a, it's an unusual thing if you've been at the church here. Many of you will, this will be, you'll know all about this already, but you might have heard people speaking in tongues. It's a gift of the Spirit. And I'd encourage you, at the end of the meeting, it's a hint, Russ. It would be great if some people, um, if you thought, no, I want to do this today. I, I, wanna, I don't know if I've given God access all areas in my life. It would be great to pray with you and be aware and be ready and expectant for God to give you those gifts. Because as you do that to God, God doesn't just take, take, take. No, no, God's a giving God and a generous God. And just be aware of that. It's good to have those things in your mind because that's often what God does at times like that. And just finally to say, for others, you may well have been baptized in the Holy Spirit, but there's a need to keep reminding God and keep making clear to God, look, this is how it is. Please speak to me about anything. Please, every area of my life is open to you. And actually, it'll be often, I don't know if you've ever experienced this, but you kind of find out there are bits of your life you never even knew were locked up. You're like, oh, that's that. I didn't even know that was there. Well, God, I'll tell you again. Flood in. I need you in my life. Come in again. Go on being filled with the Holy Spirit. I'll encourage you to do that today as well. So firstly, God living with us individually means that. God living with us, but not just here. Go and say, God, it's all yours. Going on being filled with the Spirit in that sense. Secondly, when the church meets together, 
What does it mean for God to live with us? Now, this stuff's all true, and I guess you can't be a church that's really full of the Spirit unless the people who are in the church are full of the Spirit. I guess that would be the case. But to make this just about us as individuals misses the point completely. Because as we look in the Bible, God's presence is, is, is revealed mostly to his people. I mean, you see it in the Old Testament, it's, it's, it's blatant in the Old Testament. We read into the New Testament, oh yes, we're all very individualistic now. No, not at all. It's always with his gathered people. It's like God wants to live in each of us individually, but it's a means to an end because his actual goal is not to have lots of individuals running around full of the Spirit, but to have those Spirit-filled people together in community in a way that heightens his presence with them and shows his presence more to those outside the community. Ephesians 2, he is building his church into a dwelling place for his spirit. Listen, today you could be baptized in the Holy Spirit. You could be exercising all sorts of spiritual gifts all the time. But if you are not a committed part of a tangible expression of God's church you cannot experience God's presence in its fullness. You can't do it. Because God does want to make his home with you, individual, but his ultimate purpose is to make his home with and in his people. That's how it is. If you're kind of on the edge of things, if you're fringy, if you come along but you're not really part of the community, well actually, I challenge you. Christian community lived out together is the place where God is most at home and where he reveals himself most fully. And there's a sense, if you're on the edges, you're not just on the edge of a people, you're on the edge of God's presence. We love him. We want to chase after him. We want to be at the heart of, heart of things. Well, actually, that means being heart of his people because that's how God's presence works. I've got to say, uh, this is reasonably uh, mysterious how this kind of works. But one thing I I think we can say for sure is if God lives with his gathered people, when we kind of meet together, we should have an expectation of his presence. When we come to to meetings with the church together, we should expect to meet with God. I mean, for some of you, it might be a slightly different way of looking at it, but you might have wondered, you might have been coming for maybe a shorter le- length of time to the church here, and you think, why on earth do they do things in these weird ways at this church? This isn't like a church I've been to before. They're kind of strange. You might think, why, what is it with worship on a Sunday? Why do they worship in this way? It's a little bit messy. Sometimes there are these long pauses in between songs where I'm not quite sure what's meant to be happening. Sometimes even the, the person singing, John or whoever, will say, oh, it'd be great to hear a few people speak out their praise to God. And it's like, what? I just came to sing some songs. You're wanting me to do something. What's happening here? Well, what's happening? The reason we do things like this is because we have an expectation of God meeting with us. And we want to do things in a way that will enable that to happen the best that we can. It's not perfect. But we want to leave that open. And that's a corporate thing. That's for all of us to be involved in. We want to leave space for everyone to play a part because God dwells with his people. Actually, as God dwells with his people by his spirit, we encourage then, as I've mentioned already, gifts of the Holy Spirit, gifts that God gives us. Someone speaks out in one of those different languages, tongues, and then someone else interprets uh, so we understand what's happening. People speak out what they think God is saying to them. Prophecy. Maybe words of knowledge where someone says, I know someone's got this illness. We want to pray for them. Prayer for healing. Because when God's here 
Now, I really want to be clear on this, and I find I need to remind myself this all the time. We never, if we are reducing God's presence to a metaphor or just God's with us, isn't he? But we don't expect any difference. We have suddenly, it's unbelief on our part. God's with us. He changes things. He gives us gifts. He makes things different. And we want to make our worship times, times where that can happen. You might have wondered about other parts of church life. What about our half weeks or full weeks of prayer or three-quarter weeks or whatever we're at at the moment on those things? Every, every term we would put aside a week to pray together. I heard someone say to me last time we were, were doing this, they said, look, I've been praying quite a lot recently, actually. My prayer life's doing okay. I don't think I need to come to the uh, church prayer meeting. Well, look, listen, praying on your own is great. I would encourage everyone, blanket thing, do it as much as you can. Fantastic. It's, it's the engine room of our life. However, as we seek God together, there's a sense in which God is with us in a more intense way as we do it together. As we are being built into a dwelling for God's Spirit together. I don't know if you've ever experienced that when the church meets to pray. As you kind of feel God stirring, like, what are we doing together? The vision of where we're going. So often as a church, uh, the vision of where we're going is set by those sort of times as God speaks through this person, that person, that song comes. And, this, and you're thinking, God's with us. He's speaking to us. He's directing us. Big decisions have been made in this church from those sort of meetings. God's spoken. Let's go. He's with us. Well, life groups. As you might have noticed, our life groups are not generally called dinner and a chat groups. I don't think we have them. We've got different types of life groups. Most of them are called encounter groups. As we meet and pray for each other, what's the deal? We want to meet with God because God lives with his people. And we want to meet with the the God of heaven who come and be with us. Now, I'd understand fully if someone was to say to me, you know what, that's fine, I understand that stuff. But when I come to a church service on a Sunday or a life group, it doesn't feel much like that, actually. I never leave. I mean, some of you might say I never leave with that sense of divine encounter. For some, it might be rare. Sometimes you might think, well, I've been praying for it time and time again at encounter group, but all that seems to happen is I stand there with my eyes closed getting bored, if I'm being honest with you. That could be what, what some of you think. I can just hear a couple of laughs. I know it's, it's happened to all of us sometimes, I know. But um, for some, that might be your full experience. You might think, this all sounds great on paper, but what's going on here? This, my experience is different. Well, can I ask you a question in that case? My question would be, when you come to those gatherings, what is your level of expectation? What do you expect to happen? And that's not just a trick question, because so often in the Christian faith, faith and expectation is actually what triggers the presence of God. Do you come on a Sunday morning ready and eager to meet with God? Someone says, what are you doing this Sunday? And you're thinking just before you come, I think, today I'm meeting with God. I need more of God. I'm with the gathered people of God, where he lives. I want to meet with him. Do you come with something to bring to help others to meet with God? A song, something you've been listening to God for, a passage from the Bible, a word of knowledge. Because if we take this seriously and we believe it, actually, as we come in faith and expectancy, often that triggers the presence of God and the experience of the presence of God. I'm saying the same thing, really, over and over again, but God is with his people Jesus said, when two or three are gathered together in my name, I will be there with them. I mean, it's not like this is a small thing that just is sneaked in the gaps. This is all through the Bible. But it's true. If we're blasé about this, if 
we just don't need, think we need him, we don't care, we can miss his presence. He could be in the room. He could be someone down the row even could be massively experiencing God. We could miss it. God meets with the people who know he wants to meet with them and are in faith for that to happen. But actually, there is one final element of our life together as a church where God lives, where his presence is. And I think we often miss this. And again, I think this is partly about expectation. But I want to trigger our expectation for this other area. And that's uh, when the church engages with those who are outside of the church. We do mission or whatever you want to call it uh, like that. Now, I've done all the history stuff. I'm not going to go back to the beginning again. You're relieved by that at this point in the morning or afternoon, wherever we are. Um, but it's good to reflect on some of the things we've talked about. Think about how God's presence was with his people in the Old Testament. When he was in that pillar, whatever that was like, that pillar of smoke or pillar of fire. I must admit, there's elements of mystery. I don't know exactly how this would have worked, but think about it. What was going on there? Well, actually, what God was doing, he lived with his people as his people were on the move. He went out in front of them, but as they moved, he almost pulled, it says in some places, how they moved when God moved. They went with the presence of God. Jesus, full of the Holy Spirit, he went to village, from village to village. He went to different people. He brought the presence of God to those who were outside of his gang of disciples. The early church. They're filled with the Spirit. Fantastic. What are they going to do? Well, then they go. They go to Jerusalem, to Judea and Samaria, to the ends of the earth. And yeah, when you look through Acts, you can point to powerful church meetings. And they really experienced the presence of God. Acts 4 says the whole room shook because of the presence of God. You're like, yeah, fantastic. They must have had a great time. What did they do? Did they then prepare to have Holy Spirit meetings all through the week? No, it says this. It says, the room shook and they went and spoke the word of God boldly. The Spirit's presence came to fire them out and bring the presence to other people. I think, again, faith and expectancy are very important for us if we're to experience the presence of God who is with us. And I wonder, but this, I think, is just as important, this mission. Because God, it seems in the Bible, doesn't sit around. He doesn't just get comfy somewhere. He's on the move. God living with us, God with us, is not just confined to having slightly odd religious experiences in church gatherings. That's not what it's about in the Bible. We often see... The church is quite static, a community like that meets in one sort of place. And I guess most people, if you ask them, what's a church? They'd say, oh, it's that funny little building, isn't it? Here's the church, here's the steeple, that stuff. It's a building, is the church. It's one place. I think we need to get back to basics here a little bit. When we say God lives with his church, what are we saying? Well, what's a church? A church is a local community of believers that is trying to work out that community under biblical guidelines. It's a group of people. And actually, it's a group of people on the move. And so if that is the case, God's presence and dwelling with us is more of a camper van and less of a static caravan. See, I asked you about this in the week, didn't I? Think about static caravan. Mobile home is a static caravan, isn't it? So I was going to use that. But mobile home, yeah, it's, it's confusing. Anyway, we'll go to camper van. That'll work for us. It's more of a camper van. It's somewhere you live on the move, not somewhere where it's plumbed into the ground, has the foundation there. Because the community is meant to be a mobile one that exists for those outside it. I think it has two consequences for us. First one's this. What a responsibility we have as the people of God. You ever think to yourself, oh, watch the news. 
you know what, what, this, what my society needs is God. They need Jesus. They need the presence of God. My friend in that situation, they need the presence of God as you hear what's happening. Well, how are they going to get the presence of God? How is God going to go to them? Well, actually, God goes to them as the church goes to them. Because to an astonishing degree, God's presence is wrapped up in his people. He limits his activity, in a sense, to being with his people. And God can do what he wants. If he wants to go and give so-and-so a dream over here, or do this, or do this. We can't tell God what to do and what not to do. But he says in his word that he lives with us. We carry the presence of God. If we won't go as the church, they probably won't get God's presence. It's sobering. It's a responsibility. But again, the second thing is that it should build our faith. I had an interesting experience recently. We were bolting big questions in, uh, in Selyoke, and it, um, we had a room, kind of 50 people, I guess, and about 25 people from the church, maybe some of you guys, 25 guests who were coming to talk about some kind of low-level questions, like, is there a God, I think it was. And uh, evening, at the end, I thought, reflect on the evening, thought it went well, you know, talk was okay, good atmosphere, there was kind of, people seemed friendly, seemed like uh, the questions went all right. But then I caught myself a bit, and I thought, well, wait a minute, did I, did I sense the tangible presence of God in that place? And then I thought, no, 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 wait, wait. It's not that type of meeting, is it? Because we didn't, obviously, God loves Chris Tomlin and Matt Redman. We didn't sing any of their songs. So, like, obviously, God's not going to be there in a, in a bolty house out there. And I thought to myself, wait a minute. We trust God so often for his presence in a meeting like this. But sometimes my expectation is just that, but out there, we're on our own. We've just got to make do. If we can get them back here, that's fine. L- listen, I've been praying much more this week. God, I want your presence as we go out because you live with your people. And you live with us on the move. You're not in a school. It's a lovely school. You're not staying here for the whole time. I want to move up our level of expectation about our evangelistic stuff we do together. I'll ask you, can you invite your friends to stuff? You think, well, I don't want to invite my friends to stuff. Well, let's put it differently. Can you invite your friends to God's presence with his people while we go on the move? Could be mini kids, could be time for tea, could be alpha, could be bolting big questions, could be baptism services. We, if we don't do things your friends would enjoy, you know what, there's a great way we can sort that out for you. And it's called interest groups, another life group. It's not, still not a dinner and a chat group, maybe we'll get around to that one day. But it's an interest group. And it, this is a deal with an interest group. You might have heard of this, you might have been part of one. If you've got friends, well let's put it like this, if you can get at least one other person from church to do something you're interested in, where you can each get at least one other person from outside the church to do it with you for a sustained period of time, you know what? You can get on the website. There we go. You get on the list. You can have an interest group. Why do we do it? Because as a church, as we go out together, you might think, well, we're just going to be, I don't know, knitting, something like that. I don't know what you're doing. Uh, Come dine with me or something like that. God's with us, even in those things, because he's on the move with his people. Be thinking about that now. Because I tell you what, if you think about it when the next live group cycle comes, you're not going to be doing anything. You think, oh, I don't have time to organize this. Interest groups are really good. And I think we should expect God's presence as we go out to these things and pray in that sort of way. I, I want to leave you as we finish with one final story. And it's a good, this is a one that will stick in your head. One of my favorite stories, I think, from the Old Testament. To mark in your mind as you think, as we go forward with God's presence, what can happen 
He was just doing the Old Testament again. It's 1 Samuel 5, 1 to 4. I'm going to read it and then we're going to pray. And it says this. Uh, This is what happens. Basically, the ark, remember the box, God's presence in the box. The Israelites were slightly careless and they lost it. Okay, bad move, big blunder. Okay, this is what happened. After the Philistines had captured the ark of God, they took it from Ebenezer to Ashdod. Then they carried the ark into Dagon's temple and set it beside Dagon. Dagon is their god. When the people of Ashdod rose early the next day, there was Dagon, fallen on his face on the ground before the ark of the Lord. They took Dagon, put him back in his place. But the following morning when they rose, there was Dagon, fallen on his face on the ground before the ark of the Lord. His head and hands had been broken off and were lying on the threshold. Only his body remained. Listen, there are gods in this world who at the moment seem to be winning. Gods of materialism, gods of hedonism, gods of human pride. Not to mention all the religious things that are going on. They seem strong. They seem utterly entrenched in our society. How could they ever fall? Well, I'll tell you what. They'll fall when the church realizes we carry the living presence of God with us. And when we take it into the world in expectancy and faith, he will show those gods who's in charge. Can we pray that way? Can we expect that way? Can we have faith that way?